Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. In this part two of Steve Grant's legendary 1991 Source to Sea journey on the Connecticut River, we'll talk about some of the Connecticut River's endangered species, the issues that affected the river's health then and now, the celebrations at the end of the voyage, and what the journey means to Grant 30 years on. That's coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. This river's been in my blood Since before I was born Rock, water, and mud Wheat, hops, and corn Loved you when you were clean and clear A seldom-traveled road And I loved you old and dirty And that was not so long ago I love you so I would like to go back right to the middle of the trip when you're in yep. Heartland, Vermont. Yeah. You've come down from the North Country, which is rural, very uh, kind of picturesque in a way, not a whole lot of human habitation. And you're conscious that you're at the middle. In fact, you're kind of high-fiving. We've actually made it 18 days out, and look at us. We've gotten through a bunch of it. And you wrote in your story that day, I look forward with both hope and worry to the last half of the voyage to see how the river that has long captivated me has fared as it makes its stretch run to the sea. Now, the river's changing, and you've talked about how, you know, suddenly the human imprint is much more, uh, much more apparent. And it's in, in this area, in a, in a stretch of river below Bellows Falls, which is, there's another hydro dam there and very fast running water, that you had a reflection on the effort to restore several of the anadromous fish species, the, the, the various, actually, not just fish, but the wildlife that was endangered along the Connecticut River. You, you talk specifically about the effort to bring back the Atlantic salmon to improve the uh, shad populations, the migrating shad, and also that there was an effort going on to save the eagle, right? So at the time, I don't know if you can remember what the state of that was and how people felt about it then, but if you could reflect on where the popular consciousness was about that in 1991 and where you think it is today and how successful it's been. Yeah. Uh, well, in the case of Atlantic salmon, uh, back then there was still great hope that uh, a, an Atlantic salmon run uh, could be recreated on the Connecticut River. And you might explain about yeah. the anadromous fish. Yeah. So uh, the way it works with Atlantic salmon is Atlantic salmon are born in small streams, typically, and they will then uh, migrate at a, about age two. They migrate to the main stream 
and go in this case here would be the Connecticut River, all right? And they go out down the river, out to sea. They go out off the coast of Greenland, 2,000 wow. miles away. And they grow to adulthood there, where after four or five years, they're weighing four or five pounds. They eat a lot of shrimp out there. And uh, then at age four or five, they migrate back, and they migrate back to the very river where they were born. They will come back if they were Connecticut River salmon. They come back to the Connecticut River, and they go up. And let's say that they were born in the Farmington River in Connecticut. They would then veer off in Windsor and go up the Farmington River, and they might go up one of the one of the many brooks that feed the Farmington River. How did they and know? Spawn. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. they're they're still uh, they're still studying that that yeah. exactly what triggers them, how they do this. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't believe it's even to the today uh, fully understood, but that that's their life cycle. I mean, and it's it's fascinating. But salmon were wiped out on the Connecticut River uh, by the 1800s, by the early 1800s. There was a big dam built, uh, you know, on the New Hampshire-Massachusetts line. And that, that first big dam there basically blocked salmon from all of the hundreds of upstream brooks and streams where they used to uh, spawn. And within five years, um, a life cycle, um, salmon populations had crashed in the Connecticut River. So early on, we wiped them out. And um, there were efforts in the 19th century to restore salmon, failed. And then in 1967, there was a big federal and state joint effort to try and recreate salmon in the Connecticut River. And they spent millions, and it was marginally successful for a few years. They brought salmon in from Maine, and they raised them small salmon and they raised them in the Connecticut River so it would imprint them with the smell the the essence of the Connecticut River and then let them go to sea and hope that they would come back well over the years some came back but not a lot and what happened is they gave it basically 30 years they built dams they built fishways around dams so that returning salmon could get around these dams Basically, it's like, uh, think, about a, think about a ladder with water coming down over it, and the fish kind of swim up each step of the ladder and go around a dam. Now, when you were, when you were on your trip, they'd been doing this for 20 years already. Yeah. Were they optimistic at that time? Were they kind of mezzo-mezzo? Mezzo-mezzo. Uh, they, yeah. they knew they were having problems, and it was not going to be easy. Uh, they still hoped it would happen. Uh, they had had a couple of very encouraging years. There was one year where 500 salmon came back. My goodness, yeah. Uh, and then it dropped off again. And then, then the numbers got really bad. And what happened is uh, only about uh, eight or ten years ago, uh, they basically threw up their hands. There is a, there is a minimal effort right now, but uh, extremely low cost. Uh, They've essentially given up on the idea of restoring salmon to the Connecticut River. So are there any salmon that still come back? Is it a rarity? or? Well, 
a, a, a few have. Yeah. Uh, it's just really, we're talking handfuls of, yeah. of fish. So, you know, Salmon for, River in Connecticut. They are effectively an extinct species in yeah, the Connecticut River. Yeah, for all practical purposes. They, now, how about the shad? Because yeah. they, similarly, they, they are born in the river, migrate yeah. out to the ocean, and come back, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And the shad have always fared better. Now, they, they didn't go as far up the river, so they were not as affected by dams as the salmon were. Um, the Enfield Dam, which now is breached uh, and is easy for fish to get around, but even, uh, say, uh, 40 years ago, when the dam was still sort of functioning, uh, it was in, w- w- shad could get around it. So they could get up uh, into into Massachusetts. So shad uh, never disappeared, and their numbers, while they do fluctuate, uh, their numbers are essentially stable. And there's a pretty good run of shad in the Connecticut River, certainly as far as Enfield. There's there's quite a few. There's a big fishery for shad to this day. So uh, so the salmon was a defeat. The shad is a tie. Yeah. What about the eagles? Now, the eagles are a success story. Uh, that's a great story. And, you know, you can trace that right back to the ban on uh, DDT, uh, this powerful, effective pesticide, but with all kinds of unfortunate side effects. It makes the uh, eggs brittle for species like osprey and bald eagles. And what happens is the egg uh, collapses, crushes, breaks uh, before the chick is ever born. And so populations from the late 1940s all the way until the early 70s just crashed of these species. So osprey all but disappear from Connecticut and bald eagles definitely disappear. Uh, It had been many years until the 90s when in the Farmington River, a tributary of the Connecticut, uh, all of a sudden uh, a ball, pair of bald eagles nested at Barkhamsted Reservoir. Since then, more and more bald eagles have come back. And now right here in the Hartford area, you have bald eagles year-round. And they nest. Uh, the nests vary in location, but there's been nests in Wethersfield, there's been nests in Rocky Hill. There's been nests in Hartford up by the landfill. Uh, so that, and they're certainly down at the mouth of the river. Oh, they winter the, down there. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, 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 the year-round population is substantial now. It's probably more than 50 birds. Uh, but the winter population, which now includes uh, eagles that for many years have been coming back from uh, Maine and New Brunswick, they come down for the open water because up there everything is frozen in winter. But the lower Connecticut River typically doesn't freeze, at least for most of the river. So the eagles come down here, and for that first, the, the lower uh, 10, 20 miles of the Connecticut River, there are a lot. There are probably more than 100 eagles in winter uh, on that stretch of the river. So that's become a big success story on the river. And, uh, and many other populations, uh, you know, uh, just very quickly, uh, we wiped out uh, beaver on the Connecticut River early. This was, you know, when, the, when we had the first English and um, 
European traders or settlers coming in here, they immediately uh, get into a deal with the Native American populations, and they're you know they're sending beaver pelts worth a fortune back to Europe. And uh, they get the Native Americans to basically do the hard work gathering it for them. Uh, and we wiped out the beaver population in the Connecticut River Valley. They're coming back. You know, we don't do that anymore. And, and the beaver, po- I saw, now coming down the Connecticut in 1991, I saw one beaver. All right. And, and it was in Vermont. But there are many, there are, undoubtedly there were more then, uh, but there are many more now. And is that going to, I mean, beaver, because they make dams, they have a substantial impact on the environment where they're settled, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, beaver are, uh, the conservation biologists will tell you that uh, rivers in much of North America look differently than they used to. Now, I'm not saying the lower Connecticut River. I'm not, we're, we're talking about all the streams that feed the Connecticut they used to build dams on these. They were creating big, huge pools of water, eventually became meadows. Yeah. Uh, and all of these things really had uh, environmental benefit. And when the, when the beaver disappeared, it, it, it changed the ecology of, of the river. So beaver are thought to be a very valuable contribution. And are they to an a ecosystem. protected species now along the river? Uh, I, I believe they. I believe they are. But of course, there's issues with with beaver, because they create dams on streams. They back up and they cause flooding. So there's been a lot of moving beaver around. Yeah. Uh, not always successfully, because they'll come right back. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. just going to completely yeah. leave it to beaver, right? Yeah. Sorry. Right. Yeah. So. Okay, 18 days in the trip, you're saying, I, you know, now I'm seeing the human imprint. Now I wonder what this second half of the journey is going to be. And you start to see this human imprint in ways that you haven't seen before. You're, you're into the Pioneer Valley shortly thereafter. And you're seeing some of the best farmland in the country because it's these Connecticut River floodplains. But the farmers that you encounter and you talk to, they're feeling threatened, right? What's what's going on in their lives? It's 1991. What are they worried about? Yeah, well, there's all kinds of things going on. For one thing, there's enormous demand for that land for homes. You get, Once you get into Massachusetts and, and, and Connecticut, this... Uh, uh, flat land near the Connecticut River is worth a fortune for houses, and so the same reason they yeah, want to cut yeah. the trees down upriver, right? That's same, yeah. same, same deal. So, uh, uh, and uh, you know, there there are some more recent encouraging trends in that people are looking more and more for local produce, uh, which is helping these farmers, but that they tend to be very small scale, but. Um, there are all, all of those long ago issues with uh, being able to grow crops cheaper on the flatland to the west of here uh, continues to be a to be a, fa- a factor. But um, the one encouraging thing about that, since I did the trip on the river, is that um, 
people really are looking for local produce. The local again. board movement. Yeah. People want yeah. to eat close things that yeah. have been grown close to yeah. where they live. And that is that is helping. You're, there are there are plenty of farmers now who are saying, "Okay, I can I can supply a farmers market. I can do community supported agriculture." <clears throat> where families pay up front several hundred, five hundred dollars a year, but they get all the many different kinds of fresh produce for six months of the year. So farming farm. along the river today is pretty healthy. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if healthy is the word, but it's uh, far more stable, I think, than it was in 1991, uh, and. Um, it, you know, there's, 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 there's real hope there, I think. That's great. So, okay, let's keep moving down the river now. It's day 24. You're in Massachusetts. And you wrote on day 24 that you were feeling the pull of the Long Island Sound and the end of the journey. So, is this, are you getting, you know, are you getting tired of being on the trip? What's going on? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, a lot of things are happening. Um, you know, I'm I'm not interestingly. I'm not as tired at night. I have been basically working out so hard for weeks now that you know, for me to paddle, if I needed to paddle 20 miles in a day, huh? Okay, 20 miles done. Were you conscious yeah. that you were feeling physically stronger? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, by week three, I, I was noticing it that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've, of course, I'd knocked off at least 10 pounds by then, you know, uh, if not 15. And uh, so I, there, there's that change right there. But I also knew I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting near the end of the trip, and I knew I could do it, you know. I mean, when I first started, it's like, you know, I got 410 miles to go, and this isn't easy. And, and you've really stuck your yeah. neck out with the paper. You've said, I can do it. They've invested time and money yeah. in you. And it, yeah. Yeah, I imagine that in the back of your head, there was a time or two where you said, I don't know if I'm going to finish this. And yeah. You know, it would, I knew that I would really embarrass myself. Yeah. If I started out saying my plan to canoe the whole Connecticut River, and I didn't. I, I, I didn't want that to happen. And, you know, early on in the trip, I'm thinking about that and saying, you've got to be careful. You know, you don't want to break a leg, you know. A couple of times I fell portaging, you know, and I said to myself afterwards, you've got to be careful. You know? Well, one of the things you point out is that the banks of the Connecticut River are often very muddy, right? Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that had to make stopping and, and just the whole effort of, getting in and out of the boat, both dirty, mucky, and a little bit dangerous. Yeah, I've slid all the way down riverbanks into the river. Um, and that, you know, much of the muddy bank thing is because of the dams, with the water level going up and down, depending upon uh, electricity needs in, well, the, in and the cities. That, you know, that's such an interesting thing. This is, this is New England's largest waterway. And yet it's got 17 hydroelectric dams on it. And each of them regulates the flow of water. Behind the dam, there's a great big reservoir. And depending on power needs it, in, the, in the areas they serve, they regulate the flow of the water, the level of the water. 
to, to what degree could you even talk about the Connecticut River now as a, you know, as an uncontrolled river or as an unmanaged river? Is this, yeah. is yeah. this, is, are we really just uh, paddling on, you know, the hydroelectric company's output? Yeah, uh, we are. Uh, you know, the, the Connecticut is a hugely managed river. Um, you know, it is, uh, it is the antithesis of a free-flowing river, as the conservationists like to say. Uh, you know, uh, in New Hampshire, it is um, south of, south of the, the wildest part of the, of the river valley. You know, it's one big impoundment after another. You know, behind Moore Dam in Littleton, New Hampshire, that it creates a lake that's 10 miles long. It's a huge, big, deep lake. And, and over time, these dams also create just the fact that there is this barrier in the water. You, you know it's going to be a problem for species trying to get over the dam. Yep. But there are sediment issues with the dam itself, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so they, you know, they can only last so long. Now, they last you know, a long time for sure. But yeah, sediment is building up behind them. That has to be sometime in the long run that has to be dealt with. But they have, you know, even though they produce a fairly clean uh, and power and a good amount of power, um, you know, they do have their downside, their environmental negative side. Uh, and it, it affects many wildlife species, especially migratory fish. And it's not just salmon and shad. There are, there are sturgeon in the Connecticut River. Uh, most people don't even know that. One of the species is endangered, and there's a comparatively small number of them, but they live in the Connecticut River. And they move around. They, they migrate uh, Many miles. Oh, interesting. Uh, uh, yeah. And, Sturgeon uh, are one of these kind of prehistoric-looking fish, are, right? Yeah, they yeah. are prehistoric-looking. In fact, they, they are thought to be an extremely old fish species. Yeah. You know, they've got these big, huge scale-like things on their back. And, Stegosaurus yeah. with fins. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, they, they, they do have their, their downside. And... Uh, uh, On the other hand, you know, as a historian, I know all the years where there were huge floods in the Connecticut River and the destruction that the bad floods could cause. And one of the, you know, when you control the flow of water, you also have the ability to regulate or to help manage potential floods. So these, these, these issues become really tricky. You are weighing a lot of competing yep. influences over time. Yep. And it's a good thing I don't have to make those decisions because they are complicated ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, uh, you, you know, you, you got to Springfield, and you saw in Springfield, I think, your description of Springfield where two things happen. You came to the riverbank, and there's glass, and there's, you know, it, it, it waste and junk and just really, it seemed like an urban junkyard that you were trying to find a place to camp on. Then you walked up the hill and you had this encounter with civilization at its worst that really seemed to just forcibly impact you. Now you're coming into Connecticut and you're feeling it's time to get done. And along the way to Hartford, 
you have to be one of the last people ever to go through the Enfield Canal. You boated through the canal, right? Yeah. So uh, there is a five-mile-long uh, canal uh, right beside the Connecticut River in Windsor Locks, uh, Enfield and Windsor Locks. Uh, and uh, it used to allow uh, boat passage uh, around the Enfield Rapids. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, it was a series of locks and power boats uh, could come in through there. And they used to, I think the locks may have worked until the 60s. They, um, they were eventually closed. And so you have the canal there. And as I'm coming down the river, the um, Dexter Corporation contacts me. And uh, so they said, you know, if you want, you could come down the canal. And I said, that would be cool. You know, uh, and then I can I'll talk about the, the canal in the, in the story. But that's great. So what happened is I come into Enfield and, you know, they are waiting for me with, uh, you know, a couple of pickup trucks, a whole crew of people. <laughs> I pull into shore. They unload everything. They pick up the canoe. They put it in their truck. They uh, tie it all down beautifully and they scoot it over around right to the head of the canal, which is very close by. And no portage yeah. for Steve on and this I day. I don't have to lift a finger. Uh, and I, I get back into the canoe, and all by myself, I paddle down the canal. I'm in the, I'm in the first person in years who's gone down the canal now in a boat, and probably nobody since, I wouldn't think. I was probably the last person to go down the canal. And... Uh, so I paddle all the way down, and I get to the end. Trucks are waiting for me. And that night there, that was a night that I stayed in a motel in Windsor Locks. They took everything over there for me. I didn't have to lift a finger. <laughs> well, and really, this is foreshadowing what's going to happen to you the next day, because... By the time you get down the Connecticut River and you're getting close to Hartford, the impact of these stories has now made you a celebrity. People are following, they've been following your journey along the way, and now you're like a marathon runner who's about to cross the finish line. And the next day, you go to Hartford, and it's a big deal, right? Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, as, it, uh, as it turns out, as I'm coming into Hartford, I'm seeing more and more boats, power boats, canoes, kayaks. So Riverfront Recapture, which worked for years tirelessly to uh, provide, once again, access to the Connecticut River from downtown Hartford. Now, we had closed off the river effectively by building I-91 in the 1960s. And, you know, it wasn't easy in Hartford to actually get to the Connecticut River. Riverfront Recapture did all kinds of work for years and years and years. And eventually now we've got this park. Well, the, the place where we're sitting right yeah, now doing this interview, we're yeah. sitting on a bench at Charter Oak Park, which is part of Riverfront Recapture yeah. uh, on this beautiful fall day. 
in the middle of COVID times, you know, socially distanced and yeah. recording. Yeah. Thanks to Riverfront Recapture. Thanks. Absolutely. And so back then, in 1991, this wasn't done. It was, it was planned. They were planning to do it, hoping to do it, looking for money. But the amphitheater up there and this stuff was not in place yet. So you were part, you actually, I mean, they were celebrating your trip, but you also became kind of a symbol for Riverfront Recapture. Yes. And so they had a big function right here. They had a big function right here in Hartford. Um, and, I, you know, I paddled in and all these other boats clustered around me. They set up a podium up there. And they asked me if I'd make a few remarks, and I did, and other people spoke. Uh, Riverfront Recapture used it as another, another way to make the point that, um, hey, this is a pretty cool river out here, and let's, let's let Hartford get to the river again. And let, you know, let people experience the river as much as possible. Well, and fortunately, it happened. And I understand you got... Uh, messages from the governor, you got proclamations from the mayor of Hartford, from the mayor of East Hartford. Do you still have those? Are yeah, they? Oh, I, I have I have Lowell Wiker's framed proclamation uh, uh, honoring me uh, on my trip. And same thing, mayor of Hartford and East Hartford. And yeah, how well, neat is that? that yeah. Yeah. So, so what a day! Do you do you remember what you said when you spoke to people? Uh, yeah, it was it was brief. Uh, I spoke a little bit more at the end, but but up here I said, you know, the you know what you need to know is that, you know, despite its problems, and the river still has problems, uh, it's a, it's a beautiful river, and this has been a fabulous experience, and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm loving my trip down down the river, and looking forward to going all the way to the sea. And it's so nice that we can gather here in Hartford on the riverbank. And and big fat in Hartford. Next day you're back down the river again. You had past Middletown. I don't know if you remember this, but you described going around the bend of the river in Middletown, and kind of looking back and saying, now I know why people settled Middletown. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, re I do remember that. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, if you, uh, the river does take a bend, uh, uh, you know, just south of Middletown. And um, I remember turning the canoe around and, and looking back. And if you were coming upriver, as Adrian Block did, you know, and, and early settlers did, they're coming up the river, uh, you know, the Hooker Party, of course, came in, you know, overland from from the Mass Bay Colony. But uh, others have come up the river exploring. And you see Middletown. And, and, and you can see, okay, I could it's see. It's a good place to stop. I could yeah. see that that's a, that's a place where you could, you know, you could stop. And, and a town could develop. There. Well, and if I think I recall correctly, throughout the 18th century, or for much of the 18th century, Middletown was the largest city in Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. For you yeah. know exactly uh, for that reason, it's yeah. where the river kind of bends to go north. Yeah. But you kept going past Middletown. Now you're coming down to Old Saybrook, and this is, you know, this is from the celebration standpoint. When you get to Old Saybrook. That's the end of the journey, right? Yeah. So, 
that day, I, I just love the account of what's happening. You're starting, you, your, your wife comes down, some friends come down, they put in, so you're all paddling together. And tell us about, you know, that experience of coming in at the end of the trip. Yeah, so the very last day, the current uh, had, um, had uh, you know, announced that they were going to have a party uh, for the finish. Uh, it was a Saturday or a Sunday, and... Um, so uh, it was going to be right near the mouth of the river, and uh, they um, they invited people uh, to come. So I put my canoe in in Essex that morning. I had camped on Knot Island, not supposed to camp there, but I camped there, and nobody did anything. So I'm camped on Knot Island, and uh, I I get up in the morning, make breakfast, and I've got to head down, and. Meanwhile, the lower Connecticut River, if you're paddling on the lower Connecticut River on a weekend in summertime, believe me, there are a lot of big boats and there are big wakes. Yeah, you spend a lot of time turning into their wakes, right? That's it. You know, it's like if you're in a kayak or a canoe, you got to be watching constantly because you could get easily flipped over. So you got to keep quartering into the thing and... I'm paddling down, and I'm I'm my family is now joining in. Uh, my friends are joining in. My kids are in canoes. They're they're not paddling. Uh, my my daughter was eight at the time, as I recall, and my son was uh, four, and uh, so they're tucked into canoes. My wife is in there. She's actually paddling, uh, and and other friends have joined me. And then, and then there are lots of other people bopping along with us. But the interesting thing is, is like I'm ripping along through the through the water because you're yeah. in this great shape yeah. now, and, and everybody else is a landlubber. That's it. Yeah. I, I'm, I don't even realize it at first, but as I'm paddling along, I'm just like flying through the water. But I'm in pretty good shape now. I've been out for almost five weeks paddling, and. You know, like I said, going 20 miles is not that big a deal So did you turn around and look and everybody's way back there? And you're like, I got to slow down. I turned, I literally, at one point, I turned around and I went, holy cow. They're like, you know, three football fields behind me, you know. And, And I'm just, you know, blowing along. So I stop and then I just tried and Stay with every everybody. Was it hard? Yeah. To kind yeah. Of, yeah, yeah, because I'm I'm used to just you know driving the paddle yeah. through the through the water and um, and I was I was I was again as I recall I was alone and then a photographer joined me, uh, but the photographer wasn't paddling, you know. So I again it was yeah. just it was just me, but we're ripping through the water, and then we we pulled into Dock and Dine in Old Old Saybrook there. And there were several hundred people there. In the well, and I understand your editor poured you a glass of champagne. Yeah. Then he poured the rest of the bottle over your head. head. Over my yeah. head. Yeah. Yep. That's uh, absolutely true. This had to be a pretty emotional moment. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, do you do you, yeah. do you remember how it felt? Yeah. That- oh yeah. And with with my family, my my you know my kids were like jumping into my arms. Yeah. You know, and, and my son, who was only four at the time, you know, I mean, he was like, you know. He was like, you yeah, know, he, he wanted to. That's my dad. Yeah, he wanted Yeah. To, yeah, and, you know, and my daughter's like right up against my side, and, and my wife is right, is right there too. And um, yeah, so it was, 
it was this very uh, family moment. And then uh, it was just cool. I, I'm mingling with all these people who, you know, care about the river. You know. And you remember what yeah. you said then? Uh, I, I remember. I remember thanking. Well, uh, I remember thanking my editor uh, because he had been hugely helpful. Uh, and uh, uh, his name was Larry Roberts. He's gone now. Uh, fabulous career in journalism. Uh, current uh, Washington Post. Um, um, was an editor overseeing Pulitzer Prizes, Pulitzer Prize uh, w winning stories. So uh, he, uh, all along the way, we would, we would often talk and, uh, and coordinate. And uh, he, would, he would just tell me about any issue going on. And so I thanked him profusely. And then the same thing with the, the, the DEP people in Connecticut uh, were, were very helpful. They sort of kept an eye on me. They didn't want anything to happen to me, yeah. you know. And they were there. And, the, you know, I mean, the deputy commissioner was there and, and the head of water quality, who I had known for years, and, and, uh, and some other people uh, spoke, too. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was just a wonderful feeling to have finished knowing I had done the whole river. And, and, and you know, you had finished, and everybody came. There's a big party, and now it's done. You finished your trip, theoretically, and people go home. But then you do one more thing, don't yeah, you? Yeah. What happened? Yeah, so I hadn't really finished the Connecticut River when I was at Dock and Dine for this big party. So... The Connecticut River really ends at the Saybrook Lighthouse, one of the Saybrook Lighthouses there, right? And that's where Long Island Sound is, you know, officially begins and the yeah. Connecticut River officially ends. So it was a mile away. So my brother-in-law and I hop in my canoe, nothing in it now, yeah. just the two of us and our paddles. And boom, down we go, and we, in a matter of minutes, we shoot down this one mile, and we go all the way down to the lighthouse and make sure we go past the lighthouse and turn around, bring the kayak to shore. People have brought our cars down there, and I pop the kayak on top of my Jeep, and... And now you're home. And now I'm done. So, was it emotional? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. to, you've done for over a month. You've been paddling this river, and now it's over. How did it? How did it feel? Yeah, uh, I just I just felt great. I, I was I was thrilled that I that I had done it and I had had the experience. I knew I, I knew that I would always remember it, and I remember a lot of detail from that trip. So it really imprinted itself yeah. on on me, and. You know, I felt, you know, uh, satisfaction and um, and um, at the same time, I was I was really looking forward to not being on the river. Yeah. Uh, you know, because every day, I mean, my feet were wet all day long, yeah. you know, that that whole thing. And then, you know, every day making, you know. Not every day, but almost every day. Handling all day, baking all uh, night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> baking. And, uh, but setting up the tent and taking yeah. it down, yeah. you know, breaking camp every day yeah. for the most part. It's a lot part. of work. That, it's a lot of you work. Know, it's not fun. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but my experience with camping is no matter how carefully you pack it, whatever you need is at the bottom. 
For sure. Yeah. Uh, for sure. I've said it a million times myself. Yeah. So, so it is, it's hard to believe, but it's almost 30 years since that trip. Yeah. Looking back on it now from this perspective, you're, you're three decades along. You were 40. I mean, my 40s. Yeah, were, I, you, I was 44. You were 44 when you did that trip. And now, yeah. you know, 30, 29 years later. Yeah, yeah. How's the river changed, and how have you changed? How were you changed by that? Yeah. Um, how was I changed? Uh, well, I think one thing. I, I think that it, uh, it, it reinforced my interest in the river and rivers in general. Now, I've always had a real soft spot for rivers, uh, and which led to my doing the Connecticut River. But... Uh, it wasn't as if I then said, okay, I've done the Connecticut. Because I ended up uh, writing about and still write about the Connecticut River. I have a blog now and I write about the river from time to time. But I, I ended up writing many more stories for The Current about dis different aspects of the Connecticut River, uh, much about wildlife uh, Geolo the geology of the river, many subjects uh, on the river, and many other rivers. And I've also, I've also uh, uh, kayaked or rafted many other rivers uh, in, in America, in Canada, United States, uh, the Rio Grande, the uh, Colorado River, the Deschutes River in Oregon, um, all over New England. I've done did, all the major rivers. Did in New the trip England. make you a more confident boater? A more um, confident? Uh, yeah, perhaps. Uh, yeah, perhaps more confident. Though I had done a lot of paddling uh, before I did the Connecticut. So it, it didn't feel like this was a major breakthrough accomplishment in a way. It was. Well, I mean, it, anytime you do thirty-three days of anything and. Yeah. Yeah. completed it's a major accomplishment but it wasn't like a newfound skill yeah no no it wasn't that because i had i had paddled a lot i had done you know i had already done you know uh, twice the allagash river in maine which is 100 miles i had done the st john's river in maine i had done parts of the penobscot uh, the moose the saco uh, the winooski in vermont um, I had done many New England rivers before I did the Connecticut. The Connecticut was the biggest, and and for me, one that had always, you know, because I'm a I'm a Connecticut native, uh, and uh, I'd always, you know, I, even as a kid, I had fished in the Connecticut. My my dad took me shad fishing one time uh, down. Uh, uh, in the lower uh, Salmon River. So you are, I mean, you are obviously a chef. Can you plank bake shad? Uh, you know, I have never plank baked shad. I've cooked it. You know how to fillet it? Because uh, that apparently is a great skill. It is a great skill. It is a great skill. Uh, I would not say I'm good at it. Uh, I've done it. Uh, but uh, typically, I've just gone into uh, a good uh, fish market and bought uh, fillets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Smart man. Yeah. Yeah. So looking at the river today, we're sitting here, you know, it looks beautiful. How would you rate 
the health of the Connecticut River today versus 1991 when you were on it? Yeah. I, you know, I don't think it's changed greatly because, you know, we, we did our major cleanup of American rivers and rivers in Connecticut in the very late 60s and the 1970s. That was when we made huge progress cleaning up really filthy rivers, including the Connecticut. The Connecticut was a mess. It was. It was a mess from the mid-19th century all the way up until 1970. Uh, disgusting. And uh, uh, so that got cleaned up. But, it, you know, we never really finished the job. Uh, in my estimation, I know it's a lot better, and you'll see people out here water skiing sometimes. I don't want to water ski uh, on the river in the Hartford area myself. Uh, the, the, you know, the, we still have what's called combined storm and sanitary sewers in the big cities, Springfield, Hartford, Middletown among them. And so uh, the, the combined sewers where you have storm sewers and sanitary sewers they use the same pipes that means the sewage and the rainwater runoff runoff runoff. joined together what happens is you get a big rainy period it's way too much liquid for the treatment plant to handle so much of it just gushes into the river untreated so to this day you still have uh times uh, where the river actually has untreated sewage in it. And that, that shouldn't be in 21st century America. That shouldn't be happening. Uh, now, why? It's hugely expensive to separate these things in cities like Hartford. And there has been progress. I recognize that. You know, they keep chipping away at it. But again, like I say, um, there's no reason this shouldn't have been done before now. Uh, so that's a problem. And then the other problem is uh, runoff pollution called non-point source pollution, technically. And that's all the stuff that just washes off paved surfaces when it rains. And it goes into storm sewers and right into uh, rivers. And if you come out after a rainstorm, you'll see. You'll see little like, tiny little oil slicks. That yeah, oily film, film on yeah, the water. And, film on the water, and, and that's just tire it. residue, and and yeah. you know the drips from engines, and yeah, yeah. And when and you're in a big city, yeah, pieces that, of paper cup and all that, you know, come into the river. So, you know, that stuff still going on, but, uh, you know, the basic major cleanup that we did there in the late '60s and in '70s. You know, that's sitting there. It's, it's, you know, we don't routinely dump raw sewage into the river anymore. We don't, uh, we don't allow factories to just uh, discharge vile wastewater into the river anymore. That has to be treated. So, I mean, those insults to the river are, are, are gone or almost gone. So that, that's good. But you again, know, the, the state of Connecticut DEP did a statewide water quality survey a couple of years ago. They released it. And in the report, they say that all of the major rivers, including the Connecticut, are Class B water, which means it's safe for swimming. Yeah. Uh, you know, not safe for drinking, but it's safe for all recreational activities. Yeah. But you're skeptical. 
Yeah, I you know. But on a good day, yeah. Yeah, on, yeah, a, on a good day, yeah. After yeah. the storm, maybe stay home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I know, I know they call them Class B, but, um, you know, I think there's Class B and there's Class B. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and you want B plus, so yeah, you're not going to play. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, again, I I've been out here. You know, I've been out here on the river. You know, since the trip, I've been out here in recent years in the Hartford, in the Hartford area. I've paddled my kayak, and um, you know, it's it's not a it's not a cesspool out there. Um, I'd like to see it cleaner. Now, do you have just a couple of things for wildlife? Is it a better place than it used to be, or still it, the same? It, it uh, sort of depends on on you know what species we're talking about. Uh, you know, certainly with the with the bald eagle, hey, they're happy, they're they're thriving. That's good. Um, you know, beaver are are, are coming back. Uh, bird species. Um, the the Connecticut River is very interesting in in that regard because uh, only in the last twenty years or so have they recognized that the Connecticut River it, uh, is is its own flyway. We know about the Mississippi River and some of the other famous worldwide um, um, flyways, but the Connecticut is one too, and it's it's been studied. And, and in fact, in general, the Connecticut has been so deeply studied by biologists and botanists that it, that it's wonderful. We know a lot about this river, uh, and it's it's so much of it is fascinating. But one of the things they found is that the the Connecticut is a flyway and that for some species it's it's real important and you know maybe one example is a little bird called a black and white warbler it's truly black and white and you know it just you know it it, it hangs Warbles, around on yeah the, yeah it's a, it's a warbler so the, you know they're they're like nervous wrecks you know they they're all <laughs> fling all over the place you know they're never still uh, and they're not they're not very big but they come up, they're a sort of early migrant in the spring. They're coming in from way, way down south. And they, they come back up and they come up the river. And what the, the, one interesting thing that they're finding with the black and white warbler is, is that when it first comes up the river, uh, it stays real close to the river because there's more insect life on the trees right at river's edge. So they take advantage of that because they'll, they'll nibble on caterpillars or whatever they can there, right? And then uh, as things start to bloom and blossom and happen, they go farther inland uh, and away from the river. But this is, this is the food source that's keeping them alive as they first come in. Uh, the Connecticut River is their, is their welcome way. That's and for other species, it's uh, it's thought to be thought to be similar. That's fascinating. So, you know, I I feel like I've just <clears throat> excuse me just begun to tap your knowledge of this river. You know so much, and you've done so much. But this is this is a great story. Is there anything about your trip that people should know that we haven't covered? Is there anything that's that is really important to you? I, I think uh, anybody who's able 
to get out on the river, uh, especially in a canoe or a kayak, but it doesn't have to be in a canoe or a kayak. I would say go slow, uh, but at, at the pace of a canoe or a kayak, you're going to get a real feel for the river. And the more you get a feel for the river, the more you're going to respect the river and you're going to want to protect the river in the long run. And it's worth seeing as much of it as possible to, you know, if you're a Connecticut resident, this, this, is, this, is, why, this is why Hartford happened, Windsor, Wethersfield. It's what drew people here in the beginning. And uh, it's, you know, our, our European history uh, begins with the river. And uh, Native Americans were here long before the Europeans were, and they were all along uh, the, Connecticut, the Connecticut River. There are all kinds of archaeological digs that have been done over the years. Um, and uh, like I said, if you can get out on the river explore different pieces of it uh if you're able to and and i and i i think you'll i think you'll respect the river uh even more and uh and and work to uh to help uh, ensure it gets better and on that really thoughtful and important note i think i'll just thank you for this extraordinarily interesting interview thank you This river's been in my blood Since before I was born Rock, water, and mud Wheat, hops, and corn Loved you when you were clean and clear A seldom-traveled road And I loved you old and dirty and that was not so long ago I love you so Oh, I tell you what I love that river, she's Connecticut and it's Oh, Connecticut Your water will carry me home and I will lie on your riverbank She's in my arms and there's God to thank And it's, oh, Connecticut Peace like I've never known You bring life to the land You bring trade to the sea bring geese on the wing, you bring comfort to me. Every time my dreams run dry, I bring them home to you. Mother to the wayward child, you always see me through. Yes, 
Connecticut and it's oh Connecticut your water will carry me home and I will lie on your river bank she's in my arms and there's got to thank and it's starlight on Connecticut peace like I've never known She's Connecticut and it's Oh, Connecticut Your water will carry me home And I will lie on your riverbank She's in my arms and there's got to thank And it's starlight on Connecticut Peace like I've never known Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Steve Grant and the Band of Steady Habits. To learn more about Steve and his work, visit his blog, thestevegrantwebsite.com. This episode was narrated and produced by me, Walt Woodward. I also wrote and sang the song Great River that you hear in this piece as recorded by me and the Band of Steady Habits. We appreciate your listening and hope you'll come back soon for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.